Hey, morning. Welcome to Southfield, where every answer on the screen was wrong. I don't, I don't know what the deal was with that quiz, but um, Moses' wife was not Daniela. <laughs> there is no Daniela in the Bible at all. It was Zipporah, clear as day. The only I, thing what that I in can, the world? The only thing I can figure is that when they were putting those answers in, they were just plugging them in, and they already had, like, the graphic set, so they just copied and pasted, and somebody didn't double-check. It's not just wrong. It's dead wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's so, what? I don't Again, get it. At Southfield, we like to test your biblical knowledge to make sure that when you think that you have the right answer and it pops up wrong, you're actually doing the digging to go find uh, it yourself. I used to think that I could just choose a video and not have to watch yeah. all five minutes to find out. <laughs> From here forward, we will watch and at least explain because a whole bunch of people now think that, that, that Jesus wasn't a Christian or something. Well, oh, boy. Now I, I do wonder, like, was there a 3,700-pound 3, pumpkin pie? Well, ginger, ginger is in pumpkin pie. I mean, it just... Mm. Great way to start. It is cool outside, though, which was really beautiful, right? Yes. Doesn't the I'm cool feel great today? Not because I'm a slob, which I am, but um, but because it is the first Sunday of hoodie weather. The rest of this week, we're not supposed to reach 70 degrees. And I know for some of you, you're like, oh, summer. I'm like, fall. Let's go. Had my first pumpkin spice latte this week. I'm ready. I love well, it. It's fun because we're, we are testing the limits of weather. We have one more person today that wants to get baptized in the river. And I'm like, I, I think we can do this week. And after that, we're going to be cracking ice. Yeah. So it's getting right up to the edge, yeah. but really excited after church. If you can join us over at Four Rivers, very excited to have yet another person publicly declare their, their faith in Jesus through baptism. So that's going to be, that's just going to be great. I did like the declining temperature. I noticed the one day you had kids out running and it was 95 degrees. I didn't even want to walk in that and you were running. Yeah, I don't want to throw shots this morning, but I will at Manuka. I hear they canceled practice last Tuesday and uh, Shanahan, Washington, Dirksen, all, basically all the Juliet schools in Shanahan, we ran a meet. So it was not worth it. It was 95 degrees. It was <laughs> steaming hot. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very thankful that those days hopefully are now well behind us. I had a, I had a really uh, wonderful opportunity this week, something that, that I've wanted to do for a long time, and it finally got together. Um, I got a contact from Nick Henkel, who's the superintendent of the Shanahan Schools, uh, to get together and talk, and I, I just I love the privilege of of getting to know him a little bit better, hearing about where he is in his walk of faith, as well as I mean I've just been really uh, thrilled with the way that he has led the school through you know a difficult time. I mean, figuring maneuvering your way through COVID and everything else wasn't easy, and he's done he's just done a great job with that. So one of the things I wanted the opportunity to do is have him come over here, take a look at our building, and just say, hey, if there's ever a way that the school, the school district is able to use our building, we want to be open to that. I mean, I, I still feel incredibly indebted uh, to Shanahan Junior High for, for those years of being able to meet in that place. We're, we're alive in here today because of the time that we spent in, in Shanahan Junior High. But but it was cool to be able to have that conversation and just kind of go through, wow, you've got, a, you've got a guy in charge of the school district who's a devoted Christ follower. You have Chad over at, over at uh, junior high, devoted Christ follower. You have Beth and you and others at the school who are devoted Christ followers, right, right down to Ray James, the guy who's keeping it all running, is a Christ follower. And the influence uh, that you're able to have for Jesus in that context is, I love that. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Really, really incredible. So, 
got some things that we'll be over the next few months talking about, opportunities uh, for involvement that I think are, are unique because of his perspective, things that are unique where we're really going to have a chance to have a, a positive impact on some kids. Yeah. So be good. Uh, positive impact on kids, I think of, I think of, of youth group. I, I'm really laughing. So Kelly had the nerve to sit in Jenna's seat today. Jenna went to college but she's put her picture on the chair and said, nobody can ever sit there. And Callie's sitting there now. Oh, you are in trouble. <laughs> so tell us other things about youth group today while she gets over that. Well, yeah, I was going to say, while, uh, while Callie gets haunted by the, the ghost of Jenna, uh, <laughs> no, we are, we're on our, our regular schedule for now. Uh, so 6 to 8 on Sunday nights with, with Revive and the high schoolers, and then 6.30 to 8.30 Wednesday nights with the junior hires at Refuge. Uh, and both groups are going to be uh, just wrapped up a series in one group and we're wrapping up another this week. So got some good stuff coming. Uh, really excited for, for what, we're, what we're heading into. We're going to be analyzing we're, through a series. We're going to be looking at how to study the Bible in Revive so that we're not just opening and reading and being like, well, that was nice. Um, so actually breaking it down and, and learning how to study the Bible, which is really, really cool. It really um, relates to what we're talking about today. Yes. Because yeah. it's not just reading a book. It's yeah. understanding the, the genre of literature you're reading or whatever and, and what then the interpretive rules are for that. So I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated that you're doing that with the kids. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fired up about it. Um, we do have some things coming at the end of the month that we'll announce uh, to the kids here in the coming weeks. And so just good stuff on the horizon uh, for, for both groups. When the update went out this weekend, uh, one of the things that we mentioned is actually going to apply to you here in a short time. Have you ever listened to the Scripture Lullaby CD? I haven't. Yeah, well, I, I know, I understand. Gift, like, I understand. Ten times, but no. So great set of songs that have been put together that are, you know, direct Scripture uh, that, that are sung in a way that is restful for a child or an adult, and we put a link for that for you. They've actually got a, a teddy bear now. I don't think you're sliding a CD into yeah. them, but, you know, a nice, a nice <laughs> way of hearing those songs and... And uh, so I, I love pouring scripture in any possible way. That's, that's uh, really vital. So that was one of the things in there. Do you remember what else was in there? Yeah, this Tuesday night, if you've been coming to Southfield for just under a year, or maybe you're at like the year 50, six week, 50, yeah. you know, 60 week mm -hmm. mark, and you still don't feel plugged in, you still don't feel like connected, we have an opportunity this Tuesday night to, uh, to come learn about the, the ways of Southfield. So, and I'd love for you to come to that. If you can, it's helpful when you register for that. You can go onto our website and, and register for that under groups. If you end up not registering, please come anyway. We'd love, we'd love to have you along. So, uh, really, really good opportunity for that. One of the things that did not end up in the update, but that's really important, along the lines of schools, Katie Kuchar, for many years now, has been involved in a Moms in Prayer, people that pray, moms that pray for their kids as they're involved in school, and that group meets over at uh, Village Church on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock, group of moms that get together for an hour to pray. So if you ever got some time uh, free on a, on a Thursday night, you're not at Mom Connection, and you want to go over and, and pray for our students, uh, feel free to do that. Have we go ahead and get the Bible. We're, we've been working our way through Psalm 119. We've said a few times now, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses long. And as you're listening to it, what you hear is a, is a psalmist who is deeply in love with the Word of God and deeply in love with the God who wrote the Word. So uh, you're going to be reading, I think, from verses 49 to 72, was it? 80. So, oh, oh we even all, better. We went okay. all the way to 80. Go for it. All right. <laughs> Remember your promise to me, for it is my only hope. 
Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. The proud hold me in utter contempt, but I do not turn away from your instructions. I meditate on your age-old regulations, O Lord, they comfort me. I become furious with the wicked because they reject your instructions. Your decrees have been the theme of my songs wherever I have lived. I reflect at night on who you are, O Lord. Therefore, I obey your instructions. This is how I spend my life, obeying your commandments. Lord, you are mine. I promise to obey your words. With all, the, with all my heart, I want your blessings. Be merciful as you promised. I pondered the direction of my life, and I turned to follow your laws. I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. Evil people try and drag me into sin, but I'm firmly anchored in your instructions. I rise at midnight to thank you for your just regulations. I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commandments. O Lord, your unfailing love fills the earth. Teach me your decrees. You have done many good things for me, Lord, just as you promised. I believe in your commands. Now teach me to do good, to have good judgment and knowledge. I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. You are good and only do good. Teach me your decrees. Arrogant people smear me with lies, but, I, but in truth, I obey your commandments with all my heart. Their hearts are dull and stupid, but I delight in your instructions. My suffering was good for me, for, I taught, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. Your instructions are more valuable to me than millions in gold and silver. You made me, you created me. Now give me the sense to follow your commands. May all who fear you find me in a cause for joy, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your regulations are fair. You disciplined me because I needed it. Now let your unfailing love comfort me, just as you promised your servant. Surround me with your tender mercies so I may live, for your instructions are my delight. Bring disgrace upon arrogant people who lied about me. Meanwhile, I will concentrate on your commands. Let me be united with all who fear you, with those who know your laws. And may I be blameless in keeping your decrees. Then I will never be ashamed. Thank you. God, we come to this part of our service every week where we know that we're about to <clears throat> approach the Word of God. We're about to hear what you have to say to us. And the more we learn about your word and the way it was written and the way it came to us, I pray that our hearts would approach it with a, with a, with a spirit of seriousness and reverence that when we look at a verse, hear a verse, we would recognize that we're hearing from God and that we would never find ourselves in a place of hearing you, hearing your word and resisting your desires but that we would be open to what you are saying, that we would be quick to obey, and that we'd walk in your path, recognizing that this, this book is the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. I pray that you would illuminate us today, that we'd know the right way to walk. In Jesus' name, amen.
So as we've been going through this series, Can I Trust the Bible, we've talked about different approaches that we can take coming, into, coming to the Bible. One is the approach of the cynic. The, the cynic looks at the Word of God and, and almost from the start just writes it off. They, they're, not really, they're not really serious about digging into it. They just have kind of blanket statements, blanket reasons that they believe that the Bible is illegitimate. It could be anything from how in the world can modern people in modern times that, that drive cars and, and do all the things we do believe in a book that was written starting 3,400 years ago? How can, how can you seriously believe that book has anything to say to us? Or they may look at it and say, you know, I believe in, in science and I believe in data and how in the world can these two things go together? They just don't mix. And so there's just kind of a, a sweeping it away, a, write, a writing it off, a callous way of saying, you know, I want nothing to do with, word, with the Word of God. I think the opposite approach that, that in some ways is equally unhealthy is to approach the Word of God and have no questions, not wonder about anything. Because I'm telling you what, I, I've spent the year now listening through the one-year Bible. I've read it through several times, but listening through it. And there are times I'm walking on the path, I'm, I'm listening to this, and, and something will be said, and I'll just stop and go, what? What? How does that work? How, how, how is that consistent with the character of God? And I'm trying to understand. So the healthy place is, if we can say it, it's the place of the skeptic. And skeptic, I'm using it in a positive way, not a negative way. The skeptic asks questions the skeptic wonders. The skeptic sees something and just doesn't close their eyes and say, I don't want to see it, or pushes it away because they don't feel like believing it. But, but they stop and look and ask questions of the Word of God. They try to understand. They dig in a little deeper. The skeptic has a spirit of openness. The cynic is closed. The, the skeptic has a spirit of humility. I'm not the authority. I need to listen. The cynic is the authority. There's a spirit of pride that pushes it away. Well, whether you approach the Word of God as a skeptic or a cynic, one of the things that people will throw at the Bible again and again is that the Bible is full of contradictions. There are contradictions throughout the Bible. How in the world you can, can you believe a book that has so many contradictions in it? If we were to back up the truck about 41 years, I spent my first September at Cedarville College in Cedarville, Ohio, in the middle of a monstrous cornfield learning. And so there I was. Yeah, they had college over 40 years ago. Stone tablets were hard to carve, but overall, we went and we learned. And, and, and when I went there, my major, it was called a pre-seminary degree. So basically, I was taking a degree to go do graduate work. I went to learn more English, literature, communication, just a wide variety of things, being well-prepared, well-rounded, which you see I took seriously, well-rounded so that I could go ahead and study the Word of God at, at, at a graduate school. When I was approaching that, I started taking different classes, and one of the classes we were required to take was Introduction to Philosophy. And when I took that class, I was like, wow, this is pretty fascinating. And so I started taking philosophy classes. I was really intrigued by them, really curious. I, mean, I had communication as a minor and philosophy as a minor. So I went and talked to the head of that department. He was a new professor at that time. And I said, hey, you know, what are the classes I really need to take? He said, well, there are some I'd like to see you take, but there are some that are required. 
And one of the required classes was logic. You had to take an introduction to logic. Now, I don't know how you are about required classes. Overall, a lot of the required classes I took in my lifetime, the reason they were required is because nobody would have taken them otherwise, right? And, and so why in the world am I sitting through this class? Somebody's making a lot of money off me, and I am not interested at all. So I hear required, and there's, always, uh, there's already this little bit of a, a droop inside of me. Oh, I don't like taking required classes. You know, it's funny that some of those classes, when we take them, what we find out is that the things that were required were actually quite helpful for us, but in a way that we did not understand. Shelley, as a math teacher, I promise you, is challenged with these words on a regular basis. Why do I have to learn this? I'll never use it in real life. I'll never use this in real life. And, and it's funny because whether it's math or some of the other topics, foreign languages, why in the world? I take four years of Spanish and all I can do is say Taco Bell. I mean, why in the world did I take four years of Spanish? What was that all about? And what we find is that languages, math, other subjects like that, it's not about the content. These subjects actually train your brain in how to think. Not just what to think, but how to think. It gives you, it gives you the running boards by which you're able to think. It gives, you, it gives you structure in your thinking. In modern times, a lot of the way we think is structured by technology. And this isn't just the invention of the phone or the computer. Go back to the television. Anybody that was involved in public speaking before television will tell you, people used to be able to sit for hours and listen to a presentation and stick with it. The, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, three hours long, and, and people would sit and stick with it. And they start getting programmed by the sitcom, and before you know it, they're checking out right about 30 minutes. Right about 30 minutes, they're done. And then this thing comes along, and we have the magic of TikTok, right? Zing, 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 zing. And this is the way our brains have been taught to think now. Not even what they think, taught to think. We've been taught to think and move along, move along, move along, move along. And it's, it's reprogrammed the way we think. These classes trained our brain to think. So I was a little surprised when I'm sitting in the first several days of this logic class and the professor says, if you really want to learn logic, you need to take geometry. I'm like, geometry, geometry. What do, what do circles and squares and triangles and, and rectangles and rhombuses or rumbi? I don't know, whatever. What, what does all that have to do with logic? Until I started remembering geometry, that it was about formulas. It was about formulas, formulas that are similar to the syllogisms that you have in philosophy. And it helps, again, your brain to think logically. So let me give you just the basic definition, nice, short, and sweet, of a contradiction from my logic class. No statement can be both true and false. You can't have a statement that is true and false at the same time. If it is true and false at the same time, it's a contradiction. You can't have that. So let me give you some examples. We'll work through this. I have a window in my office. I do not have a window in my office. Those two statements are contradictory. I cannot both have a window in my office and not have a window in my office. It's one or the other. I don't even know if I have an office, but I, I either have a window in my office or I don't have a window in my office. Let me give you another one. I write on a computer. I write on paper. Is that a contradiction? Oh, it's Sunday morning and we're nervous. No. 
Sometimes I write on paper. Sometimes I write on computer. Both are true. The contradiction would be, I write on a computer, I don't write on a computer. I write on paper, I don't write on paper. How about this one? I own a car, I own two cars. Is that a contradiction? No. If I own two cars, I own one car. And in this particular conversation, I'm talking about the one car I have, and I'm talk, not talking to you about the other car I have that needs to be replaced. So they're not contradictory. Now, the reason I lay this out, and I feel like I'm already letting some of the air out of the balloon before we even start, is because if you'll take what we're talking about right here and start applying it to some of the things you've thought of as contradictions, you'll realize they're not contradictory. Because it is not stated in the Bible that God exists and God does not exist. It's not one thing and the other thing beside each other, canceling each other out. What we have often is things that are confusing. <laughs> they might be conflicting. They might even be complementary, but they're not contradictory. So let me give you one example from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, David has been leading, his leadership is going well, and he comes to a place that he decides he wants to take a census of the people. He wants to know how many people he has, how many soldiers he has. And we don't know why, but for some reason he's not supposed to do this. When he suggests it to Joab, the commander of the army, Joab doesn't say it outright, but he's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, not a great idea. I wouldn't do that if I were you. You know, he kind of pushes back on him a little bit. And yet David goes ahead and does the census and he brings, he brings punishment on the people for having done it. When you read it in 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he incited David to go against them, saying, go number the people of Israel and Judah. It says, God told him, go take a census. You come over to 2 Chronicles, same story, same event, chapter 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to, to number Israel. One passage tells us that God gave David the motivation to do the census. The other says Satan gave, gave David the motivation to do the census. Here's the question. Is that a contradiction? You're really scared. It's not a contradiction. The contradiction would be one passage saying God told David to do it and another passage saying God didn't tell David to do it. That's a logical contradiction. What you have instead here and, and it would take, you know, several sermons to unfold it, is an understanding of the classic problem of evil. It Go back to Job. When, when, when uh, Satan wants to attack Job, what does God say? You can do everything up to the point of killing him. What does that mean? God is the one that permits what Satan does. And so you have some playing out here. What it, what it actually does is helps us to begin to understand something of the God's role and Satan's role when it comes to decisions and when it comes to, to temptation and that sort of thing. Now, is it confusing? You bet. Very confusing. It, is it conflicting? Hey, I read it, and I, I wish I didn't bring it up today, you know, because some of you are still going, you didn't explain that very well. But it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction, and this is where I think we get in trouble. We seed the ground and just accept, well, it's a contradiction. It is not a classical, logical contradiction. Both can be true. You go into the New Testament, and there's some places that things happen that people will question pretty quickly, come down to the, to the time of the resurrection. 
And it's the first day of the week, and it says, Mary Magdalene and the other woman, the other Mary, went to the tomb, and they got there, and they saw an angel. Mark chapter 16 says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went to the tomb. One has two, the other has three. Is that a contradiction? No. They just pointed out different writers had different reasons for pointing out the person who was there. The contradiction would be Mary Magdalene was at the tomb. Mary Magdalene was not at the tomb. It's not a contradiction. But then as we work through this, some of the gospel writers only refer to one angel. Some of the gospel writers refer to two angels. Is that a contradiction? No, a contradiction would be there was an angel. There were no angels. There were two angels. There weren't two angels. But you can have one and have two reported in the same place, in different places, and it's not a contradiction. Is it confusing? Yes. Does it seem conflicting? Perhaps. But it's not a contradiction. We can't simply seed the ground and say it's a contradiction when by the very definitions in logic, it is not a contradiction. Now, a piece of what we need to start to understand is some of the different genres or types of literature that exist in the Bible. And what does this mean? This means you have to do some hard work, which, you know, your faith is worth the work. Your faith is worth the work to take the time to do some hard work. So we have genres of literature and types in our own times. I'm a little kid, grew up in western New York. We'd shop at Topps Market. And at the, at the counters, you're walking out, to, out the line, there would always be newspapers, You'd have New York Times, because we were New Yorkers. You'd have, you'd have uh, Buffalo Evening News, the Niagara Gazette, the Tonawanda News. They're all lined up there. And there was this other newspaper that I liked far more than all those, the National Enquirer. It was the best. I mean, they had the best stories, you know? And there were, others, there were other papers like the National Enquirer that did the kind of, same kind of thing. So in 1992, in 1992, a National Enquirer-type paper lets us know, lets the world know, announces it. Bat-child was found in a cave. We found Bat-child. Isn't this fascinating? Isn't this exciting? There he is. Oh, look at him. Woo, pretty kid. So we found Bat-child. Now, that sold some papers, so they decide they're going to keep going with this. Before you know it, they tell us that Bat-child has been locked up in a Georgia medical lab. So they're doing testing on Bat-child. And then what happens? Bat-child escaped just a few weeks later. And his escape led to a three-state chase when he drove in his Mini Cooper across three states. It was crazy Bat-child on the loose. And Bat-child ultimately ended up in Wisconsin where he roots for the Badgers. So next week when the Illini play there, be careful. Bat-child might attack you. This was actually on the internet. I am not kidding. So anyway, I guess it was, it was made into a musical, if you can believe it. There are different genres of papers. If the Chicago Tribune started talking about Bat-child, I'd scratch my head. I don't expect that story to be there. But honestly, if, if the National Enquirer told me something I knew was true, I go, have I been wrong all along? Because we understand they're different styles, they're different genres, they don't work the same way. You have different styles of literature in the Bible. By the way, none of them are National Enquirer. You have different styles of literature in the Bible. You have law, you have history, poetry and wisdom, prophecy, gospel, epistles or letters, and apocalyptic literature. They all have a different 
way of being written and a different way of being interpreted. You can't take the rules from one and apply it to the other. You need to know the rules of what you're reading. You don't take the rules of the Inquirer and apply it to the Chicago Tribune. They're not the same kind of paper. Different genres, different types of literature have different rules for writing and interpretation. So some of the things that people will throw out quickly as a contradiction, they're not understanding what they're reading. They're not understanding the style of literature. For example, if you try to interpret apocalyptic literature the same way you do law, you're going to have a struggle. Because law is as literal as it gets and apocalyptic literature is as figurative as it gets. The two are on opposite ends of the scale in that regard. If you try to read law into history, you're going to have some trouble. This is one that gets raised as a contradiction from time to time. People read the history books, and people who follow God in the history books do some really evil things. They do some, they do some outright wrong things. And a person will read it and go, this is a contradiction. They're not supposed to be doing that. All history does is report the facts. It doesn't place a value on the fact. It doesn't place a judgment on whether murder was right or wrong, adultery was right or wrong. It just says they killed, they committed adultery. It's just a reporting. You got to know what you're reading. Poetry, if you try to read poetry into epistles, you're going to have a problem. Proverbs aren't promises. They're general statements on the way life works. And yet Paul was not making general statements on the way life works. When he said don't commit adultery, he wasn't saying, on the whole, you probably shouldn't do this. He was saying do not commit adultery, period, done. Prophecy, prophecy is not history. Prophecy is predicting the future. History is telling us what, the, what happened in the past. Gospel is not history either. There's a little difference there, and we'll walk through that in a few moments epistles. If you try to read a letter like a gospel, you're going to have trouble. And if you try to read prophecy as apocalyptic literature, even there you're going to have struggles because all of them have different rules for the way they're written and for the way they're interpreted. So the question we always have to be asking ourselves when we approach the Bible is, what am I reading today? Am I reading a book of the law? Am I reading a book of history? Am I reading apocalyptic literature? What am I reading? And then know the rules that apply to that particular kind of literature. So I want to I just land in the Gospels because of all the parts of the Bible, that's probably the part most of us have spent the most time in in our lives. At least when we became believers, someone said, read the book of John, read the book of Mark. Probably more familiar, if I, if I said, let's all go to Hezekiah, you'd all be confused. Well, you would because there's no book of Hezekiah, but you'd all be confused because those parts we don't read as much as Gospels. So when we, modern Americans, Western thinkers, not Eastern thinkers, think of the Gospels, we think of them as history, we think of them as biography, we think of them as generally just reporting. They're telling us what happened. And we think in terms of chronology and timeline, that from start to end, you're going to have the facts of Jesus' life laid out in a timeline, in chronology. It's not the way Gospels work. It's not the way Gospels work. And there are three things you need to understand about a Gospel as you're reading it. First of all, there is a perspective of purpose. Each of the Gospel writers have a different reason for why they're writing their gospel. And that reason influences the stories they choose to include, the sayings they choose to include, the order in which they place them, 
the details they include or don't include, all of these things are influenced by the way they're trying to tell the story. So you look over at John. John is overt. This is why I've written this book. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. He says, everything I've collected here is one purpose. I want to prove that Jesus is God. He's believable, and you should trust in him. Luke's a little different. Luke writes to somebody named Theophilus. Not sure if that's an individual or if that's a a people group. Uh, Theo is the word for God. I said falafel in the first service too. That second part, that second part is love, God lover, a Greek God lover. And he says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent philosopher, yeah, that guy, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's saying, I want you to be able to compare this to what you know and know that what you're hearing is the truth. Matthew doesn't give a purpose statement, but how does he write the book, begin the book? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why are you writing a genealogy? You want to prove. You want to prove his family of origin. You want to track back. You want to prove that he is royalty. And so what he's going to bring together is going to be proving the royalty of Jesus. Mark just says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm writing of a gospel about the Son of God. He just wants us to get to know the story of Jesus. So each of them, as you read them, you learn that they have a different perspective. Matthew wants to talk about the Messiah. Mark wants to talk about the suffering Son of God. Luke is talking about the Savior for all people. John, the Son who reveals the Father. Matthew is the most structured of the books. I mean, there's a real, very clear structure. Mark is the most dramatic. Though it's the shortest of the gospel, it includes more miracles than any of the others. So it's very dramatic. Luke is the most thematic. Luke will take three or four stories, put them together, three or four parables, put them together, and they're all talking about the same thing. He's trying to get a point across and he's, as he's developing a theme. John is the most theological of the four. Matthew was written to the Jewish people about the promised Messiah, and he talks about the son of David. Mark is written to the Roman people, and he talks about the obedient servant who is the son of man. Luke is writing to the Greek people, talking about the perfect man. This is what perfection looks like. The Greeks were obsessed with perfection, talking about the son of Adam. And John, John, God so loved the world. He's talking to everybody. He's just wide open. He wants to talk about the incarnate deity, the son of God. Every one of them has a perspective of purpose, and their purpose determines what they include, the order they place it in, the details they include or leave out. But none of them, none of them contradict. The second I'm just going to call a perspective of perspective, or you might call a perspective of perception or perspective of this is the thing I want you to see. This is the thing that's most important. So there are certain stories, the same story is told. And one talks about two demon-possessed, and another talks about one. One talks about two blind men, the other talks about one. One talks about two angels of the tomb, the other talks about one. I have three kids, two boys and a girl. And if they were all to tell a story about what they saw, Brian would be brief and to the point, Shelley would elaborate, and Nate would have been looking out the other window and would have missed the story. So... 
you bring them all together, they're all going to focus on something different as they're telling the story. It's not that one of them was saying, there was one, no, there's not one. They were just, they were, they were, they were including the person that was important for the impact that they were trying to get across with the story. Further, we have the perspective of oral tradition. This is so foreign to the Western mind. We are not oral tradition people. I think we like to think we are. We think we're great at stories and such. We're great at stories on film. And we're great at watching a story. But, but Eastern cultures are great at repeating a verbal story. And through the centuries, you know, there, there are stories told of oral tradition where you can hear a story here and go to a tribe 30 miles away and the exact story is told in pretty much the exact same way. Oral tradition has rules that it follows that brings it all together. So we have to know them. What are the rules that the Gospels used in order to convey oral tradition? One is formal controlled tradition. This means you have a person who is the person in, in the tribe that tells the story. It may be the rabbi, it may be the elder, whoever it is, but they're the keeper of the story and they're the ones that tell it every time to ensure that it's told properly. Then you have informal uncontrolled tradition. It is everybody just telling it. And so you got, you got all kinds of people telling their version their way, and it's all over the map. The third is informal controlled tradition. Informal means you don't have to have the authority telling the story, but there are certain parts of the story that are going to be fact-checked. There are certain parts of the story that need to be in there in order for it to be the real story. I really think when it comes down to it, the Gospels fall in that third category. You look, for example, at the story of the paralytic, the paralytic that's let through the roof in order to be healed by Jesus. Three different ways this story is told. Matthew doesn't mention anything about the roof. He just says that the paralytic was healed. The other two, Mark and Luke, both mention the roof. And they, all three of them, if we had the time to go through, all three of them include a little bit different detail a little bit different way, but they're all telling the same story. But here's what's fascinating. All of them have things in common that do not change. In every one of the stories, there's a paralytic brought by friends, brought to Jesus because there was not room to reach Jesus himself, that the faith healed the man, that Jesus forgave his sins, that the leaders called him a heretic for doing so, to which he responded and said, take up your mat and walk. And he helps him to walk. So you have pieces that are the same in every one. There's the control, but at the same time, you have some flexibility of the way it's controlled. So you have flexibility and consistency at the same time. A little bit different perspective, a little bit different viewpoint, trying to get a certain point across, all told a little differently. I've been told by friends here at church for the past few years that it was really, really important for me to watch The Chosen. And I kept going, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Someday I'll watch The Chosen, promise I'll watch The Chosen. I tried to figure out the app, I couldn't figure out the app, and I'd wait and wait. This past week, we started watching The Chosen last Saturday, and last night we finished it. We blasted through that thing. I mean, just, just ran through. I was fascinated. I was blown away by the way this story was told. Now, the Hollywood telling of a story is very different than the writing of a gospel. But I'm hopeful that the imagery will help you. They took certain stories 
certain facts, certain pieces, and brought them together to try to convey a point. That's what a gospel does. So, for example, Nicodemus in the Bible does not play as prominent a role in the story of Jesus as he does in the movie. But when you're watching the story of Nicodemus unfold in that, your brain kind of goes, wow, I see how it could have worked. Of course, the danger for us is to think that the points we saw in The Chosen or the Ten Commandments or whatever your other favorite Bible story is are the Word of God exact. They're not. The Gospels are the inspired Word of God. They're the Word of God exact. But God allows them to bring their perspective, their point to the moment in order to convey what is being said. So that, you know, the Gospels are contra contradictory. No, they're not. They all have a different way of expressing what happened. I think the other thing that's different for us in our times is that we just have different writing standards. Again, we are, we are 21st century Americans. We are obsessed with certain things about writing. For example, copyright matters. If I write down a word, I'm putting a copyright on it because I'm going to be able to sell that thing, right? Original material. It's got to be your thoughts. You can't go steal the thoughts of some professor from the University of Illinois, include it in your book, sell that book. You, you've got to credit that professor for what they said. So there's got to be credit given. Gospels don't work that way at all. Ancient literature doesn't work that way at all. It was a compliment to copy somebody. It was a compliment to take what they said and bring it on over. So then and now are very different. Credibility of sources. For us, we care about what a particular scientist said, about what a particular uh, area of thinking has to say about this, what does this university have to say about this, what does this authoritative entity have to say about this. That's what demonstrates credibility for the American mind. Credibility in the Old Testament and New Testament, I witness. I saw it. I saw it, and I wrote it. In modern times, if, if we were eyewitnesses and somebody could come up with a, a scientific study that contradicted what we saw, most people would believe the study over the eyes. That's where we are. We have different standards of accuracy, different ways that we determine whether or not something is being told accurately. For the Gospels, approximation, simplification, abbreviation, omission, compression, and paraphrase are all permittable. You can do that, and you've not violated the story. You've not violated the story at all. We also have differing views of um, objectivity and subjectivity. I think there was a time, probably prior to cable news, that objectivity was truly there, that people were able to objectively say, this is what happened, and not put a finger on the scale and try to weigh one way or another what you saw. Having said that, no human being is objective, right? No, we can claim it. We try to be objective, but we're not. The Gospels don't care about objectivity. I have a subjective point that I'm trying to make. I have a point that I'm trying to get across, and I'm using these stories and these sayings to bring that point to you. And then we're big on chronology. It's got to happen in order. It's got to happen in the timeline that it said. With the Gospels, the reordering of sayings and events is okay. That's not considered a violation. It's not considered a bad thing because, again, you may be trying to get a point across, and so you grab four stories and bring them together and say, this makes the point. Very different than the way we approach things. 
So take all of that when it comes to, when it comes to contradictions. And um, I want to kind of work through a, a question in conclusion. How should I respond if somebody cites that there are contradictions in the Bible? Talking to somebody and they say, yeah, the Bible's full of contradictions. How should I respond to that? The answer is not play Pastor Dennis's sermon from September 25th at the 9 or 10.30 service. How should I respond to that? You respond with a question. Can you name one or two? Now, you're not doing this to be a jerk. You're not doing this to, you know, to expose them for a generalization. You're doing this to try to figure out where their heart is. Why are they saying this? And what you might find as they give their response is you're hearing the heart of a cynic. And you're going to handle that a little differently than a sincere skeptic who may actually be trying to come to a place of faith. So you're listening to the questions to hear the heart. And by the way, the cynic, we don't give up on the cynic. The cynic's a cynic because they've been hurt deeply. And their way of dealing with their deep hurt is to push you in the chest and to throw it away instead of dealing with the hurt in their heart. So even in this, even in this, when someone raises contradictions, we have the opportunity of getting to the heart of the matter with them, of bringing them hopefully safely home to God. So listen to them, listen to it. I promise you one thing you will hear as a person raises contradictions, you'll be able to quote this part. That's not a contradiction. And you can let people know what a real contradiction is. It can't be both true and false at the same time. That's a contradiction. So, Father God, as we have a chance to have these conversations, I pray that we will listen, be open. Pray that we won't be so quick to throw our opinion in there that we short-circuit a great conversation. Pray that we'll be able to see even ourselves the areas that we have claimed that the Bible is contradictory when it is not. Oh, it might be confusing, and we've got further study to do, it might even feel conflicting, but it's not a contradiction. The Bible does not contradict itself. And I'm thankful for all the years this was written by all the people that took a pen to a scroll. That you've brought to us a word that is perfect and beautiful and complete that speaks God's word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we're going to move to communion. Uh, we have tables at the sides and tables at the back. And, and as you do, I, I want to remind you again that every time we come to communion, it is a weekly opportunity to stop in our tracks and ask God, is there anything between you and me? Is there any area that I need to ask you for forgiveness? Is there any sin that I'm holding on to that I need to let go? This isn't just a break in the service so that you can stand up and stretch your legs. This is a moment to really get serious with God, to repent of our sins, and to realize that, that his grace and his forgiveness was offered to us through the death, burial, and resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus.
The images of Jesus from that movie talking to the Samaritan woman are still pretty fresh in my brain. And um, that song, you know, Jesus could have sung it to her. I I think in in part Jesus was trying to say to the Samaritan woman, it's so much easier than you people have made it. It's so much easier than you made it. It's, it's, not, it's not about all the trappings that the Pharisees and Sadducees made up. Sure, there was law, but they put law on top of law on top of law on top of law and made approaching God something that seemed utterly impossible. And he's saying, you don't understand. It's so much easier than you humans want to make it. You can worship me anywhere. You worship me in spirit and in truth. So just come be with me and spend time with me. And I want to love you and give you the chance to love me. So let's stand together, and as we do, we're going to continue to sing to Jesus.
There will come a day that we'll be in the presence of God and we'll know him and we'll know everything about him. And as we do, we'll finally understand that that word good really means something. He's a good father to us and he has the best of intentions toward us. And he's written things in his word, not to just say, here's some suggestions, try them out, but to say, this is how life works. The way I designed it, how it works at its best And if you do the opposite, it's going to be a train wreck, a total disaster. And even his son came in the form of flesh and and drove in the same car that we do and knows that this is the way life works best. And yet we resist the goodness of our father. We resist him in something as simple as when he says, work like crazy for six days and then you need one off. You need a day to rest. You need a day to reconnect with God. You need a day to reconnect with your family. You need a day to recharge your batteries. And it's so funny because when we hear those words rest from God our Father, it's no different than most of us who had a three-year-old and we said to our three-year-old, you need a nap. And they go, and by the time you pick them up and take them and put them in the bed, about two minutes later, they're sound asleep. They needed the nap. God knows what you need. He knows you need rest. So why do you keep fighting it? Today is a day to rest. Today is a day to take a break from it all. Push it aside. Spend a little extra time at the table with your family. Yeah, the table. Remember the table where we used to eat? Spend a little time there. Linger with each other. Get a nap. Get refreshed. Receive the gift that the good, good Father has given you. He didn't intend it as punishment. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. So in about 15 minutes... Uh, we'll be down at the river for a baptism. If you want to join us there, we'd love for you to come on down. Um, and, and in the meantime, uh, Misty Yost will be over here to pray with you at the table if you want to pray today. You enjoy your week. We'll see you next week.